Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Many people never forget their address or even the phone number of, of their home uh, where they grew up. And that's how I feel about the Deltona Massacre. I'm, I don't think I'll ever forget the date, August 6, 2004. I don't think I'll ever forget the address, 3106 Telford Lane, um, where the murders took place. I feel like that information will be forever imprinted uh, on my brain. That was former Volusia County Sheriff's spokesman Gary Davidson discussing how he still vividly remembers so many details from one of the most horrifying murder scenes in Volusia County history. A home invasion massacre 14 years ago in Deltona that left six people dead. More about that shocking case is coming up on the 50th episode of Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. Later in this episode, I'll discuss the Deltona Massacre, which is still commonly known as the Xbox Murders. They took place 14 years ago today inside a one-story home at 3106 Telford Lane. Six people were bludgeoned and stabbed to death by a violent gang member and three of his followers. The slayings left a lasting impression on all those who investigated it, covered it, and lived near it. My guests for that segment will be former Volusia County Sheriff Ben Johnson, former sheriff spokesman Gary Davidson, and former state attorney John Tanner, along with my colleagues, News Journal crime reporter Patricio Bologna and News Journal justice reporter Frank Fernandez. But first, I'll discuss a wacky story out of Jacksonville about a man who ran inside a convenience store with something toothy and scary tucked under his arm. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Y'all got beer still? Y'all got beer still? Y'all ain't out, are y'all? Is she taking the last bit of beer? Are you taking the last bit? Come here, bring your arm. That was 28-year-old Robert Barr, who one night last month ran through a Jacksonville convenience store to get some beer while carrying a live alligator. After asking the clerk whether he had any beer, and after the clerk realized what the customer was holding, the customer started chasing him past the beer and soda coolers. Barr's friend, 23-year-old Kevin Keene, was the one who filmed the incident, according to authorities. Keene could be heard on the video cackling, while Barr, who also goes by the name Robbie Stratton, ran through the store. The clerk was spooked at first but soon started to laugh with the pair. Stratton later told the media that he knew the person inside the store and was only joking around. The media have reported that the animal was between four and five feet long and had its snout taped shut. The video was posted on a Facebook page called Only in Duval. Jacksonville is located in Duval County. According to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, officers there were told that the alligator was released back into the wild, unharmed. But they told the Florida Times Union last week that they hadn't been able to confirm that information. 
Stratton talked to a reporter from a TV news station, WJAX CBS 47, and told him he couldn't remember entering the store that night. No recollection of that happening at all? At all. This store sells some good liquor, (laughs) and I drank a lot of it that night. Stratton even told the reporter that he had no memory of being in possession of the Gator or even how he acquired it. I don't even remember coming up here. We asked Stratton where the alligator came from. No clue. No clue. I literally came to the store and he was in the back of the truck. They told me what I did was stupid and I'll be facing some charges here soon. and Probably go to jail, probably not. We'll see. His first guess was the right one. He did go to jail. Both men, Stratton and Keene, were charged Wednesday with animal cruelty, illegal possession of an American alligator, and illegal exhibition of dangerous wildlife. Their bail amounts were set at $30,000 each. First Coast News in Jacksonville, a partner with the Times Union, also spoke to Stratton, who told the station that it was all meant to be fun and games. The state began investigating because alligators are a federally protected species, and it's against the law to harass them. All of the charges leveled against Stratton and Keene are first-degree misdemeanors, which warrant up to a year in jail. Coming up, the story of the infamous Xbox murders. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it's, is that 3106? Um, Telford? It was a murder. It was a mass murder. Blood was splattered across the floors, walls, and ceilings in mostly every room. Six people were killed by four men who entered the house armed with aluminum bats and knives. The slain victims were 22-year-old Aaron Bellinger and her boyfriend, 30-year-old Francisco Flacco Ayo Ramon, along with 19-year-old Michelle Nathan and her boyfriend, 34-year-old Anthony Vega. All four of them were co-workers at Burger King, and they lived together at 3106 Telford Lane. Staying at the house that night were 28-year-old Roberto Tito Gonzalez and 17-year-old Jonathan Gleason. The killers were Troy Victorino, the six foot six Latin Gangs gang member who also was the ringleader, along with Jerome Hunter, Robert Cannon, and Michael Salas. It was around 6.30 a.m. on August 6, 2004, that dispatchers received a 911 call from Christopher Carroll, a local painter who had shown up to pick up two of the men at the house and take them to work. He noticed the doorway had been broken, like someone had kicked it in. He looked inside and saw three of the six bodies. He yelled a few times, but no one answered. He crept inside and noticed that a bed had been tipped over in the master bedroom. He went back outside and called 911. Here is a longer version of that call. Uh, it's, is that 3106? Um, in there and they're just all laying on the floor and I yelled and yelled and yelled no one answered 
And I walked in and just looked in the bedroom, and I see blood on the bed, and I stopped and backed up. Ben Johnson was Volusia County Sheriff at the time, a post he had served for 16 years. He spent more than 40 years at the agency, and that crime scene on Telford Lane remains the goriest he has ever seen. Here he is telling me about getting a call that morning from his second-in-command, warning him about what he was about to face that day. I was at home getting ready to go to work, and, and my chief deputy, Bill Lee, called me up and told me, he says they'd had a very, very bad event in the Deltona area, um, and, and he was on the way down. And uh, he told me a l- the little bit he knew about it, we'd had a home invasion that involved multiple fatalities. And so um, it was early in the morning. I mean, sometime probably I'm going to say, I don't recall exact time, but I'm going to say probably 7, 7.30 in the morning. And uh, normally on a Friday we would dress down, and, and his words were, you better put on your uniform, it's, it's going to be a bad day. Chief Deputy Lee also called Gary Davidson, a former News Journal reporter who at the time was the agency's media liaison. My situation was uh, much the same as the sheriff's. As I, I, I was at home, I was getting ready to start my day, and uh, I also got the call from Bill Lee. I imagine I was the next call after, after he contacted the sheriff. And, and my recollection is that uh, Bill did not give me any details. He just summoned me to the scene, said, uh, told me to get there as quickly as I could. Um, because there was a major crime scene developing and the news media would be descending on it rather quickly. The Daytona Beach News Journal was among the first media outlet that had assembled on the street behind the yellow tape. They were already noticing, based on the expressions of those coming in and out of the house, that there was nothing typical about this particular crime scene. Johnson, who did not enter the house until after the forensics team was finished, watched the video that was shot by someone who did walk through the house. The person holding the camera aimed it at every area where there was an abundance of blood. There was blood on the furniture. It was puddling on the floor. It was splattered across the walls and ceilings. Not long after Johnson viewed the video, he had to compose himself enough to address the reporters waiting outside. He grimaced his way through that media conference. He told the media, quote, It's a mess. There was a lot of blood and a lot of trauma. There are investigators in there with a lot of experience, and this has affected them. Johnson tried to assure the public that the victims knew the suspects and vice versa. He said the murders appear to have been very personal. That ruled out the possibility that it was a random home invasion. Word started getting around that the killings had something to do with a recent burglary at a house on Providence Boulevard, located about four miles west. Bellinger's grandparents owned that home on Providence, but they were snowbirds and they spent their summers in Maine. Neighbors told the News Journal that people had entered the breezeway of the house weeks earlier and were using the pool and hosting parties there. They also said someone had more recently broken into the house again, only this time to steal some television sets. Some of the friends and family members of the victims sat and waited all day for more information from the sheriff's office. Some of the discussions among them included stories about someone in the house stealing some items from someone else, including an Xbox game console. The sheriff's office at this point was saying very little to the media because so much work, including autopsies, forensics gathering, and interviews, still had to be conducted. Bouquets of flowers were being dropped off near the home. One bouquet had a note that read, quote, There really are monsters among us. The mother of Michelle Nathan, one of the victims, said her daughter had enlisted in the U.S. Army, but was medically discharged. She was trying to get back in somehow, maybe as a reservist. Her family was always nervous about her serving in the military, for fear she would be deployed to Iraq. 
the mother told the news journal the day after the slayings that maybe her daughter would have been better off there. The mother also noted that her daughter's boyfriend, Anthony Vega, who was killed along with Nathan, was very protective of her. He grew up in a rough neighborhood in the Bronx. He moved to Florida in large part to get away from the violence that plagued his childhood and young adult life. The youngest victim, Jonathan Gleason, one of the two who was staying at the house for the night, was an aspiring actor. He had his quirks that girls at school found endearing, and one of those quirks was carrying a briefcase everywhere he went. Tito Gonzalez was the ambitious one. He aspired to be a manager at the Burger King where he worked. He worked odd jobs on his days off for extra money, and he too was a New York transplant. He was trying to get his seven-year-old daughter to move to Florida with him. He had spent that night at the house on Telford Lane, friends said, so he could get up early that morning and join Vega on a painting job. Then there was Aaron Bellinger, who was described as a free spirit who had no enemies. She had recently moved to Florida from Lowell, Massachusetts. Her grandparents lived in Deltona, so she knew she was going to be close to family. A cousin named Josh also lived nearby. She figured she could be the caretaker for her grandparents' house while they were away. She also wanted a better life for herself, so she thought that moving to an area that was warmer, less expensive, and one that offered better opportunities would be better for her. Up north, she had worked as a dietary aide in two different nursing homes. Her boyfriend, Flacco, was not a fluent English speaker. He hardly spoke a lick of English, in fact. They were friends at first, but became more serious over time. She wanted him to join her in Florida, and he did. Last year, the Deltona Massacre was profiled on an episode of The Real Story with Marina Elena Salinas. The show airs on the basic cable network Investigation Discovery. Salinas interviewed Bellinger's father, Bill Bellinger. Here he is talking about how he encouraged his daughter to move to Deltona. It was my idea. I floated it to her. Living in the Northeast, the economy isn't too good. There aren't many jobs. It's a, it's a very expensive place to live. I figured, you know, get a fresh start, send it to Deltona. Erin took her role as caretaker to her grandparents' home very seriously. She also took her responsibilities seriously. When she moved to Deltona with Flacco, her cousin, Josh, moved in with them. The living arrangement didn't work out for a few reasons. For starters, Josh had trouble paying the rent on time. Erin also suspected that her cousin was stealing from her. He wound up getting kicked out. Josh then decided to be a squatter, break into a vacant house, and live there. He chose his grandmother's house on Providence. He was joined there by some friends. Among them was Troy Victorino. Josh's friend was a member of the Latin Kings. Victorino used intimidation as a weapon. He towered over most people, but he was no gentle giant. He had a reputation for violence. Here is Brandon Graham, who also was interviewed on The Real Story. Back in 2004, he was an impressionable teen who fell under the spell of Victorino. At the time, growing up around Deltona, Florida, um, it wasn't really much for teenagers to do, really except for getting in trouble. Chory was a very big dude, pretty uh, intimidating. Kind of scary, but I guess being a young kid living that type of lifestyle, she kind of looked up to him in a way. I mean, you knew he was a dangerous man. Brandon Graham would play a major role in the investigation into the murders. More on that later. Aaron caught on to what Josh was doing. When she checked on her grandparents' home, she noticed people had been living in the breezeway. She called her dad up north to tell him. She said in her breezeway was evidence of people living there. And I said, well, that's not, you know, get them out. She's like, they're not here. I said, well, you know, call the cops. Aaron did call the cops. Deputies came to the house and a report was filed. 
While Aaron was meeting the deputies, the home invaders were not there. Aaron identified her cousin, Josh, as one of the people who was living in the home. Before the deputies left, Aaron asked them what she should do with all of the belongings. There were a lot of clothes, shoes, and other items at the house, as well as an Xbox console and some games. Deputies basically told her that the stuff now belonged to her. She could do whatever she pleased with them. There are differing accounts about what she really did with those items. Aaron kept some of them, but some media reports stated that she gave away the other stuff, including the Xbox. Johnson said that wasn't true, adding that Aaron had intended to give everything back at some point. Before long, someone showed up knocking on her door. It was Troy Victorino. He was there to get his stuff back. Aaron agreed to return the items. However, Victorino assumed, or was told, that the Xbox system was gone. And to make matters worse, Victorino reportedly saw one of Aaron's friends around town wearing a t-shirt that belonged to him. That pushed Victorino over the edge. And that was not welcome news for Aaron, who had heard stories of what kind of man Victorino was. In the spring of 1996, when Victorino was 19 years old, he severely beat a man with a walking stick to the point that the victim was on the brink of death. Had the stick not broken, authorities think Victorino would have kept beating the victim until his heart stopped. It took six months before Victorino was arrested for that crime. It wasn't until the mother of the victim pleaded with an eyewitness, one who was deathly afraid of Victorino, to finally come forward and tell law enforcement what he saw. The victim's face was permanently disfigured. He had 15 titanium plates inserted into it. Victorino was sentenced to 15 years in prison. He served only six years. He was a free man again in 2003. Eleven months after Victorino was released, and eight days before the Telford Lane killings, Victorino was arrested again on a felony battery charge. A day or so after that, he was released on bail. That was a costly mistake on the part of the judicial system. Victorino was still on probation for his aggravated battery conviction stemming from the 1996 beating. He never should have been let out of jail. To make matters worse, sometime after his release from jail, Victorino visited his probation officer, who was fully aware that Victorino's assault charge meant that he had violated his probation. That officer was by himself in the office when the six foot six Victorino came to see him. He decided not to have him arrested. Some have surmised that the probation officer didn't do so because he was scared of Victorino. It was while he was in jail that Victorino's belongings were boxed up and removed from the house on Providence. He got out of jail with nowhere to go and with some of his stuff missing. A violent felon had slipped through the cracks of the system, and now he was more bloodthirsty than ever. He set his sights on Aaron Bellinger, the woman who put him back on the street, the woman who took possession of his Xbox. He decided to terrorize her. Around 1 a.m. on August 1st, 2004, Aaron Bellinger, who was at home with her boyfriend and her dog, called 911. 9-1-1, after the visitors banged on the door, some of them, many of whom were female, managed to force their way inside. Others were outside. Victorino was watching it all unfold from inside his car. Among those who came to the house that morning was Brandon Graham. Here he is telling Investigation Discovery about that first visit to the house on Telford. The first time I ever went to the house on Telford Lane, it was a whole group of us. 
Chori was kind of ha- hiding back in the car because he didn't want to be seen. So uh, we went with a couple of uh, homegirls of ours. We kind of all went up to the house, asking for Chori stuff, basically causing trouble, trying to fight. I think we even took baseball bats, but uh, yeah, I was there. The 911 operator was confused about the call. Erin wanted to remain in her room because she could hear the visitors calling out to her to come outside. Flacco and a couple of his friends were trying to fend them off. How many are there? I don't know. I'm in my room and I just hear them. They're yelling for me. And they're yelling for you what? What are they yelling? I don't know. They're just yelling. They're like, where is she? Okay, well, who are they? Do they know you? I don't know who they are. Okay, can you look out and see them? No, I really don't want to. Okay, do they know, does your boyfriend know that you're calling? No. Okay, so can you call for your boyfriend or something? And find out who they are and how many they are? Um, yes, hold on. There's about four or five. Okay, and do you, you don't know them at all? No. Eventually, the caller gives the operator a little more information about what may have led to those visitors coming to her house in the middle of the night. Ugh. I don't know, but they're all young. I'm really scared. Okay, well, I've already got deputies in route to you, so talking to me doesn't slow them down, but they need to know what they're going to. So uh, they're just, what are they yelling? They're just yelling for you? Yeah. What? And they keep telling to leave my voice and just in to call the police, call the police. Okay, and you have no idea who they were or what, who they are, why they would no, come there for I you? Think, I think they're here because we had a problem today. I had to call the police today mm-hmm. because there were people staying inside my grandmother's house that um, they shouldn't have been there because she... Hello? Oh, I'm sorry, because she's not with me now. Uh-huh. And then they were saying, oh, they came by tonight, and they said, can I come get my stuff? Because they said that my cousin had given them permission to stay Okay, so this may, be, this may be people that are trying to get their possessions back for another address? Yes, but now they're saying that I took stuff from the house, but I do. Okay, so you do know who they are then? But they shouldn't, well, I don't know the girls. No, no, but you know who they are and why they're there. This isn't just somebody who walked off the street yeah, off the Yeah. Okay. The operator's impatience starts to taper the more Aaron talks to her. She can also hear some of the yelling in the background. At one point during the conversation, Aaron's attention is directed at her dog, a dachshund, which had begun showing signs of fear. My poor dog is scared to death. He's shaking. Is your dog inside off, though? Yeah, he's with me. He's okay. okay with me. Good. Okay. But he's scared to death. It's all right. He's shaking. Oh, my God. What happened? Nothing. He's just scared. Oh, okay. Okay. Come in here, son. Come and sit with Mama. But I didn't want them to know I was calling the cops. So right. that's why I have the fan on. That 911 call lasted 15 and a half minutes. Deputies finally did show up. Flacco's friend's car, which had been parked in the driveway, had one of its tires slashed. Deputies at the scene, according to numerous reports, were told that Victorino was likely involved. No one was arrested for the tire slash because no one at the house saw it. As far as the confrontation at the front door... It seemed like nothing more than a disturbance to deputies. In the end, no arrests were made. But the people in the house, namely Aaron and her boyfriend, were shaken. Flacco called Aaron's father and made his girlfriend speak to him. Here is Bill Bellinger talking to Investigation Discovery about that phone conversation he had with his daughter. Well, she was like, you know, she was scared and everything. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I summed it up to they were just a bunch of punks. And I kind of raised my voice to her and said, well, you know what, Aaron? If you're that scared, come home. He's like, no, no, no. But I wish you would have come home. I wish you would have come home. Aaron and Flacco went back to sleep. Their friends went home. Hours later, the visitors returned. Aaron called 911 again. 911, where's the emergency? 3106 Telford Ave. Okay, the phone number is 575-2378. Yep, I had people over here a few hours ago. Okay, what's the emergency now, ma'am? 
the same people just came back ringing my doorbell and banging on the door. Okay, well, I didn't know that, man. That's why I'm asking. No, I'm, I'm, I just woke up. I'm still on my pajamas I'm right sure. Now. What's your last name? My last name is Blanda. First name? Ellen. Okay. And uh, are they still outside ringing the bell now, or did they leave when you woke up? No, they, they were outside ringing the bell, and my boyfriend went out and said, I don't know what your problem is. There's nobody here you want. We're in bed. And they just screaming, hitting stuff. And the guy came up, because I was in my room in, in bed, but the doors were all open. And the guy came up, and he says, what are you going to do right now? Huh? What are you going to do? Cause okay, wait, so your boyfriend, is he still outside with them? No, my boyfriend's right here with me. He just came in the house and said, put some clothes on and call the cops, because I don't want problems. Right. Oh, my God. You can hear in this next clip how Erin was at her wit's end about the harassment she was getting. Hello? Yeah. No, they left, but this is the second time that they've come that I know about. Okay. And I'm going to have to get these out there and speak with you. Okay. Okay? I know, we can't even sleep in our own house. Okay, that's fine. We'll have the deputy out there as quickly as we can. Okay, can I ask you a question? Yes, ma'am. What can I do? The deputy will explain that to you. Okay. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. During the course of the next few days, Victorino, known by his friends as Papo, kept stewing, and he kept recruiting. Robert Anthony Cannon and Michael Salas were just getting to know Victorino. Cannon was known to be a well-behaved kid, but always had trouble in school. He didn't seem to like it or have any desire to finish it. Salas's neighbor had mixed feelings about him. On one hand, he always seemed friendly. He would wave to them whenever he saw them. But they also noticed that Salas liked mischief and was always hanging with the wrong crowds. He had a few run-ins with the law already, and he was 18 at the time. They were easy marks for Victorino. Cannon and Salas did everything that Victorino wanted them to do. Then there was Jerome Hunter, who also was 18 years old. Out of the four suspects, he seemed to be the one with the brightest future. He played sports in school. He had a lot of friends. But out of the blue, he quit his restaurant job and moved out of his parents' house. It was another case of a young man following the wrong crowd. In spite of his string of bad decisions, he didn't seem to be the violent type. There was even talk of Hunter coming back home and finishing high school. Instead, he decided, along with Salas and Cannon, to burst into the home of Aaron Bellinger and kill everyone in sight. There was also a fifth member of that group. His name was Brandon Graham. Here he is describing to Investigation Discovery how Victorino started plotting the murder. Sure, uh, he started telling us about a movie that he's seen, a movie called Wonderland. At the end of the movie, uh, some individuals ran into another individual house and beat him to death with lead pipes. He basically stated that that would be something cool that he wished that, that he could do to the house on Terror Fair. Troy was like, uh, I wish I had some to do that. I'll definitely do that. Jerome was like, I believe he was the first one to agree with, uh, yeah, man, I would do that. Then Anthony agreed, I'm down. And then Mike agreed. Then eventually it came to me. Usually really nothing scared me, but it was kind of scary in a way. Some things that he said was like, you can't leave no witnesses. You gotta kill everybody, even if it's uh, babies, women, whatever. Once you kick in the door, ain't no turning back. I just knew I wanted to get as far away from them as I can. He was the only one in that group who felt that way. By contrast, Jerome Hunter, after he was told there might be a baby inside the house, was the one who volunteered to be the one to carry out that killing. Graham made up his mind to bail. He scrambled to come up with an excuse. Troy was kind of running through the motions, kind of laying down a diagram of what to do, how to do it. And I was kind of playing on my phone, texting a friend of mine, trying to see if I could come over there. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't really have anything at all. I made up some excuse, but I was just like, hey, you know, uh, school starts on Monday. You know, I got something to take care of at my buddy's house, so I'm just going to go over there. 
whenever you guys are ready, just come pick me up. They didn't really want me to leave, but I kind of like forced the issue. News Journal reporter Patricio Bologna covered the trial for the four defendants in this case. He told me that Graham was a vital witness for the state. And here is Patricio describing to me how difficult it was for Graham to say no to Victorino. They, they feared Victorino. These are kids who Victorino used to get in fights with bats at, uh, at parks and stuff like that. So they were afraid of this guy. And he said, okay, I'll be part of the, of the team. You know, But in the last minute when they were getting ready to go to Telford, laying around 1 a.m. in the morning when the entire world was practically sleeping, this guy did not take Victorino's calls. He basically said, look, I... I'm not available, or he told people, tell him I'm not here, you know, because he was scared of Victorino, and he didn't want Victorino to know that he didn't want to go along. During the night of August 5th, or perhaps just after midnight, the four killers were trying to get a hold of Graham. They're blowing up my phone, calling me, calling me, calling me, calling me. I didn't pick up. They had my friend's number. Uh, I told him, don't answer. They were driving by his house looking for me. But we just kind of hid in this room all day, and I was kind of telling him the story. And I was like, you know, do you think think we should call the cops or, you know, anything? He was like, nah, I don't think they're doing it. And I kind of was like, yeah, you're right. By the next morning, Graham would rue the decision not to call the authorities. He made sure not to compound the mistake by remaining silent. He reached out to the Volusia County Sheriff's Office after the news broke about the massacre. Here again is Ben Johnson. He was very helpful in putting information. That's Brandon Graham. He was very helpful with putting information together because of the planning they had done. Um, And and he he had been a part of that, those talks, and he decided he wasn't going to have any part of it and hid from them, basically, so that he would not be a part of what happened. Around 1 a.m., August 6th, after driving back from a new Smyrna Beach Walmart where they had purchased aluminum bats, Victorino, Hunter, Cannon, and Salas burst into the home of 3106 Telford Lane, and killed six people. When authorities showed up the following morning, music was blaring out of two boomboxes. A deck of cards was scattered across the floor. A broken knife was found on the floor in one of the rooms, and blood was everywhere. Jonathan Gleason, the youngest of the victims, was lying in a chair nearest the front door. His legs were draped across an ottoman. His head had been crushed, and he had stab wounds to his face, neck, chest, and stomach. His wounds showed that he had fought back. A few feet away lay Anthony Vega. He had been beaten in the face by an aluminum bat. Around the corner, past the closet, was where Michelle Nathan was found. Detectives said it appeared she had hid in the closet after intruders entered the house and started attacking the victims in the living room. Jerome Hunter found her, beat her, and then used a knife on her. Her wounds included three cuts to her throat. Those were the wounds that killed her. Across the hall from Michelle was Tito Gonzalez. He was stabbed at least 15 times in his chest and another 10 times in his stomach. But his actual cause of death was from head trauma. His killer beat him in the head with a bat. Then detectives looked at the master bedroom. That's where the worst of the carnage took place. Next to the flipped mattress was Flacco's body. Over by the bathroom lay his girlfriend, Aaron Bellinger. After she had been killed by all the blows to her head and by all the knife cuts, her body had been sexually desecrated. Victorino raped her with a bat. Here again is Patricio talking to me about how the female victims were murdered. Such a brutal murder as it became apparent in the trial. They were brutally beaten with metal bats. 
and some of them were still alive when their throats were cut. And, uh, one um, special victim, Michelle Nathan, was found hiding under a pile of clothes in, in a closet. According to what prosecutors and investigators said, um, she pleaded for her life, and Jerome Hunter was merciless. He plunged a knife into her and, and, and killed her right there in the closet. And a medical examiner determined that she was still alive when she was beaten to death, too. So I guess the victim that suffered the most in this case was Aaron Belanger um, because of the atrocities committed on her body by Victorino. I mean, she was sexually battered with a bat, according to what investigators said in, in the trial. The lead prosecutor in the trial for the defendants was then-state attorney John Tanner. Here he is describing to me the graphic nature of the crime scene and how it compares to all of the other cases he has handled, both as a prosecutor and defense attorney during his five decades of practicing law. Yeah, it, it was straight out of a, out of a horror movie. You know, I couldn't believe what you were seeing. And, of course, later I, I uh, carefully reviewed the photographs uh, early on. And uh, it was it was the most horrendous crime scene I had ever seen. I've been at this for uh, 50 years. Aaron's dog, a dachshund, was also found dead in the master bedroom, lying close to where its master's body was found. It had been stomped to death. Here again is Ben Johnson. Tony, and, and 43 years of law enforcement, I've seen a lot of bad crime scenes. I've seen a lot of things that really affected people, and, and you see tragedy in victims. But this is the one that absolutely stands out in the 43 years of being the worst thing that I had ever seen. As I told you, I did not go into the scene until after all the crime scene had been uh, investigated. But I'll never forget that you could not look anywhere in the house. And, and I, you, you couldn't put your hand against the wall somewhere and not touch blood or the ceiling or the floors. It was so brutal. It was animalistic is about the only way. It was a frenzy. Uh, it, it was just something that without being there, without seeing it, you can't imagine it. I mean, just cannot fathom the violence involved in this and the senseless violence that was involved in this. Johnson told me that most law enforcement officers throughout their careers never encounter anything as bad as what took place inside that house on Telford Lane that morning. The ones who do don't fully recover from it. That's a day that you, you will just never forget. Probably uh, most law enforcement officers never, never deal was such a large tragedy as what this was with so many victims. And I say victims, I'm not just talking about the, the young men and women who were killed at the scene, but your family victims and friends. When you have um, six people uh, are killed at a crime scene, so you have all of their families, and it was just, you're almost numb with, with what happened here because over the years just never even you know you hardly even hear of anything like this except i mean you know you, you go back it's, it's a charles manson sort of thing gary davidson recalls having to talk to investigators to get a better understanding of the killings so that he could give the media accurate information that was routine for him any time there was a homicide that his agency handled however he realized from the start that this was different from the others, just based on the expressions and body language from those investigators. And, and you have to understand that as a media spokesperson for law enforcement, um, you have access to scenes and personnel and information that the media doesn't. It's your job to sift through all the information to determine what's appropriate to release. And sometimes I would enter crime scenes um, to, to observe and report back to the media, and other times I, I didn't enter the crime scenes. This was one of those scenes um, that I didn't enter. And so it became my job to talk to the investigators who had been in the crime scene to get a description of what they saw so that I could relate certain details to reporters. And when I talked to those investigators, you could tell that they were absolutely shaken. 
home. They were highly disturbed by what they had seen inside that residence. And, and understandably, I mean, how could they not? No one had seen anything like it before, certainly not in Volusia County. Davidson, like Johnson, considers the Deltona massacre as the one he remembers the most, the one that has haunted him the most. He explained, like many law enforcement professionals do when they talk about murders in the same vein as this one, that victims who put themselves in harm's way, whether through the drug trade or through some other means that could put them in danger, are still seen as victims. But the murders that are hardest to explain or accept are those that involve victims who are randomly selected and targeted. They were doing nothing wrong, nothing law-breaking or immoral. They just somehow found themselves in the crosshairs of the wrong kinds of people. Davidson told me those are the hardest to get over. I guess the two main things that stuck out the most and still do to this day um, really were the brutality and the, the utter senselessness of the murders. Of course, every murder is violent, every murder is brutal and, and tragic, but you know, murders usually happen uh, over drugs or they happen over a domestic situation. There's usually uh, more of a link between the perpetrator and the, and the victim. Sometimes through their own actions, victims knowingly put themselves in harm's way. Those are still tragic circumstances, of course, but it's much easier to understand how those types of situations sometimes end in death. But the Deltona murders, they weren't anything like that, uh, Tony. They were so utterly senseless. Uh, lives to be taken over something so seemingly inconsequential, some, like some possessions, clothing, an Xbox game. It's just impossible to comprehend. Um, two of the victims weren't even permanent residents at the house. One was spending the night, and as I recall, the other had just recently started staying there. It was a crime that did more than just devastate the victims' families and loved ones. It may have, in some way, changed the public's perception of the city of Deltona. The Deltona massacre turned out to be the most notorious incident to ever happen there. The slayings made national news, so people's first impression of Deltona will forever be linked to those horrible crimes. Deltona is the most populated city in Volusia County and is one of the largest suburbs in proximity to Orlando. The community of Deltona was founded in 1962 by the famous Mackle family, the land development giants who also founded Port St. Lucie, Spring Hill, and other highly populated areas all across Florida. Deltona was predicted to be a place of booming growth, and eventually it did become that, shooting past Daytona Beach as the largest city in Volusia. The crime rate there, according to Davidson, is relatively low, but that doesn't always jive with the public's perception of it. Davidson told me that the Telford Lane murders put a permanent stain on Deltona. That's the kind of impact those killings had. Some other things that stand out in my mind about this case, Tony, is is that there's absolutely no way to underestimate the impact of these murders. Um, Naturally, um, first and foremost, the the family, the friends, the loved ones, the victims, um, their grief was just unimaginable. But the impact of the case went far beyond them. The neighborhood was impacted. The Burger King family, where several of the victims worked, uh, was impacted. The school system, uh, particularly where the two youngest victims, Jonathan and Michelle, her work was impacted. The law enforcement community was impacted. Animal lovers were impacted because of the killing of Aaron's dog. Uh, the families of the defendants, and the entire city of Deltona was affected by the killings. Uh, the, the entire city was, quite frankly, terrorized and, and even stigmatized by the murders. Um, and, you know, ironically, when you compare crime rates, Deltona traditionally has had a low crime rate. And by, by and large, Deltona is a safe city. Um, but try telling that to the residents who are bombarded with almost daily around-the-clock news coverage about the murders. Uh, for the longest time, you couldn't turn on your TV or radio or pick up a newspaper without hearing or reading about the Deltona massacre or the Deltona Xbox murders. It, it just really affected people, and it still does to this day. Investigators caught a break in one respect. 
The four baseball bats that were used in the killings were found in a retention pond in neighboring DeBerry. They appear to have been tossed into the pond from the road, and at least one of those bats got caught in a tree near the bank. It still contained DNA from one or more of the victims. Additionally, Hunter, Cannon, and Salas made admission statements to detectives. At first, Hunter lied and said Victorino was at a bar at the time of the murders, but eventually he broke down. Victorino maintained his innocence, even though a pair of bloody boots was confiscated from his home during a search warrant, and those very same boots matched bloody footprints that were found at the scene. Here again is Ben Johnson talking candidly about the monster known as Troy Victorino. Troy Victorino was nothing but a big, mean thug. He was the ringleader. He should have, as far as I'm concerned, never should have been let out of prison for a beating he'd been in earlier where he beat a man with a walking stick and I think left permanent injury to this individual. Troy was a bully, a thug, and really some of the other individuals that were involved, the defendants, especially um, Jerome Hunter and even Robert Cannon, people were kind of surprised that they got involved in this. But Troy led them along, and, and exactly what his hold over them, I don't really recall, but they were... That kind of shocked some people, but Troy was mean. Troy is an individual that really didn't belong in society. All of the suspects were arrested one day after the murders. The media storm continued for months after the murders, and it never stopped until after the trial. Some more information started to trickle down during the lead-up to the trial. For starters, it was always a mystery how Victorino convinced two young men he barely knew, young men he had just met before the slayings, and convinced them to take part in the mass murder. Hunter was someone he already knew. But what about Cannon and Salas? Victorino was intimidating for sure, but it was still hard to believe he used his brawn and reputation to bully two men to commit murder. One person, after all, Brandon Graham, did bail out. As it turned out, Cannon and Salas were convinced that an enemy was staying at that house on Telford. It was someone who had taken part in a previous attack against them. Cannon and Salas had been involved in a shoving match at a local skating rink sometime earlier that year. A day or so later, they encountered the same gang at a local park. And those gang members attacked Cannon and Salas with baseball bats, injuring them both. Victorino said one of those gang members was going to be at that house on Telford Lane. He gave Cannon and Salas the motivation they needed, according to authorities. But now all four of them were facing a death sentence. Because of the high-profile nature of the killings, the trial for all four defendants was held in St. Augustine, located about 80 miles northeast of Deltona. John Tanner decided to try them all together, even though he knew there would be risks associated with that move. I realized in doing that, uh, we risked not getting the death penalty uh, on everyone and... Uh, at the same time, I felt the victims' families didn't need to go through it multiple times. And I felt like it was important that we, we try to bring it to a conclusion as reasonably soon as possible, consistent with our preparation and, of course, the defendant's right to a fair trial. Patricio Bologna covered the trial for the News Journal. It took place in July 2006, almost two years after the killings. That must have been one hell of a trial you covered. Um, I still get emotional, Tony. Um, the, the, the crime occurred around the corner from where I lived in Deltona. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I left the area, too. Um, it occurred on Telford Lane. I lived on Hayward Avenue. Hayward and Telford intersect. And it was not far away from the home where I live at 1383 Hayward. And um, the scene was bloody. 
like I said, I didn't actually go and see the scene of the house, but just by what was shown and at the courthouse during the trial, it is it was a bad it was a bad crime. It was bloody. When you think about the reason why this crime was committed, you cannot fathom the idea of such cruelty exists in human beings. The four defendants standing trial together meant there were six attorneys defending them. It was a tall task for the state. The prosecutor, who was tasked with doing the lion's share of the evidence presentation, was Leah Case, who was now a circuit court judge in Daytona. Patricio interviewed Case during the pretrial phase. He observed her in court during every hearing and every day of the trial. He got a strong sense of how difficult the trial was for Case, and he also got the sense of how strong she was. Leah Case, Judge Leah Case, um, she and I are still friends at a certain level because she was one woman among a team uh, that consisted of six men lawyers. So she was fighting six lawyers, and she was accompanied by assistant attorney, uh, I think, David Smith and John Tanner, who did the opening argument. She had to go through thousands of photos, bloody photos, the way how the victims were found, the way how the house was found. And I just started thinking, if it affected me as a reporter, sitting in the courtroom looking at all the these horrible things that was that were that was done to these poor people. I wanted to understand the perspective of of how it felt for someone who was trying to find justice for these six victims. So I, I did a feature on Judge Leah case, and um, it hit her hard. I would say because the main victim, Erin Ballinger, had a birthday just like she did, and. Um, so she said that's what she felt that like, made her push harder for justice for this young lady. She had many sleepless nights, as she told me, you know, but um, like she said, she had to put all those emotions, all those feelings inside because she was facing, facing a team of six lawyers who were trying to stop her from finding justice for these young people, particularly Aaron Ballinger. John Tanner, who prosecuted everyone from Eileen Warnos to the notorious Farina brothers, also thought Case did an exceptional job at trial. Even though I was certainly the senior prosecutor in the room as the state attorney, uh, Leah Case, I considered to be prosecutor in the case. She, uh, she did uh, the vast majority of the work in the case, trial preparation, evidence presentation, I had uh, absolute confidence in her, her, not only her ability, but her sensitivity to the case uh, from every aspect, and uh, and she did a fantastic job. She, she was one of the best prosecutors that uh, I have ever worked with. It was Tanner who summed up what this case was all about in his opening argument. That's when the media found out that the Xbox murders tag may have been a misnomer. Patricio told me that Victorino simply felt as though Aaron Bellinger had contempt for him, and he did not like that feeling. It was originally said by the sheriff's office that the murders were sparked by the theft of, uh, of an Xbox. But um, State Attorney John Tanner, when he opened his arguments in trial in St. Augustine after the trial was moved there, he said that the attack was basically in as a revenge form of getting back to Aaron Ballinger because Troy Victorino, who considered himself a Latin King gang member, felt disrespected. And to use John Tanner's words, Troy Victorino felt dissed. And that's the reason why they believe this attack uh, took place. That's why their argument was based on how cruel and uh, horrendous it was. After all of the gory evidence was presented, after all of the witnesses testified, and after all of the victims' families had their say during the penalty phase, jurors recommended death sentences for Victorino and Hunter, the ones who inflicted the most damage inside that house. The judge upheld those recommendations, and the two were sent to death row. 
Hunter, at the time, became the second youngest inmate on death row. Cannon and Salas received life sentences. The death sentences for Victorino and Hunter remained stuck for almost 11 years, but in June 2017, those death sentences were overturned by a circuit judge. The ruling was based on a decision made by the Florida Supreme Court that required all death sentence recommendations be unanimous. Previously, majority votes were all jurors needed to recommend death. Victorino and Hunter were convicted of six counts of first-degree murder and were sentenced to death for four of those convictions. But none of those votes that jurors gave was unanimous. The votes ranged from 10 to 2 to 7 to 5. The news of the overturned death sentences angered Ben Johnson. That is disappointing. Um, the pure, I mean, the individuals, you know, the ones, the, the judges who did this, who put it on hold, should be, they should go, they should look at the crime scene. I mean, you know, they, they justice is justice. We were there. We saw what happened. We know what happened. And yes, it's disappointing that uh, that they have to go through this again. And the families have to go through this again. That's the worst part. The families, those those victims may have to go through again, sitting through maybe another sentencing hearing to see what happens. They can never put them this behind them. Not one day ever can they put this behind them. But the mere fact of having to maybe go back and sit in a courtroom again can absolutely just bring up, dredge up everything once again and set them back years in whatever recovery they managed to go through. And, and that's not fair to the victims. The Hearst ruling overturned a lot of death sentences for a lot of death row inmates across Florida, and it affected a lot of cases in Volusia County. Last week, I sat down with News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez, who told me what prosecutors have to look forward to when Victorino and Hunter come up for resentencings next year. And there were lots of cases where the Hearst ruling, uh, it, it was applicable to a lot of previous cases. Mm-hmm. And two defendants in particular were Victorino and Hunter, mm-hmm. right? Yes, yes. And they're, uh, they, uh, they're coming back for a new sentencing, which prosecutors have described basically as a new trial. Because even though the guilt won't change, I mean, that's, that's determined. They've got a lot of the previous uh, penalty phase that they went through was, uh, you know, included things from the from the guilt or innocence phase of the trial. So basically, prosecutors are saying they're going to have to put on a whole new trial pretty much for them. Uh, And that's expected to happen next year because neither um, Hunter or Victorino had unanimous votes in in any of the murders, Uh, unanimous recommendations for death. So. Frank wrote about all of the local cases affected by the Hearst ruling and pointed out that the first one he thought about was the one involving Victorino and Hunter. He figured there would be a lot of upset people at the news of their death sentences being put on hold. Toward the end of our discussion about it, Frank mentioned to me what Bill Bellinger told him when Frank interviewed him over the phone last year after the news broke that his daughter's killers had their death sentences overturned. Bellinger's comments were surprising. I know when the Hearst ruling came down and you knew it was going to impact a lot of cases, this must have been at the top of the list of cases you thought about, right? Yes, this this was a big one. I mean... Uh this 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 well this was like the, this has got to be one of the worst crimes ever committed in Volusia County. So yeah, this was a big one, and I think it stands out as I'm trying to think of any others that would approach this that would have would have to that have to go through the penalty phase again. And uh, this yeah. is it. I guess that's a segue to my last question because the the justices did think about the constitutional rights of these defendants. That's their job. But people like Ben Johnson and John Tanner and others who 
work tirelessly to convict these people, basically, believe justices did not weigh enough the impact that this would have on victims' families. They're going to have to go through trials all over again. Uh, I'm sure you've heard much of the same thing. What what have people told you? Yes, uh, some family members that I've talked to have been upset that they're having to go through this all over again. Some are mixed, like you'll have some members of the family that will say, yes, well, you know, we're disappointed, but we'll be in court and we'll testify and we want to try to get the person sentenced to death again. Others said, you know, I'm done. I don't want to do this all over again. I don't want to go through all this. So uh, I'd rather they just get life and be done with it. One of the uh, fathers in this, Bill Bellinger, uh, he wants to see the person, Victorino, get deaf, but he is also says that, you know, they made the right decision, the the, the Supreme Court, in requiring a 12-0 vote. I, I spoke, I brought a story uh, where I, I spoke to him. He said, I think the ruling was right as far as a legal ruling. If it takes a unanimous decision to convict, it should be unanimous to be sentenced to death in the name of fairness. That was coming from Bill Bellinger, which is pretty impressive when you think what he's having to go through. To this day, John Tanner still thinks about that case. He doesn't just think about the brutality of it, but he also thinks about the victims' families. He still prays for them and hopes they find some comfort so many years later. I can't imagine what they have experienced, uh, what they're still experiencing. It's something that really never goes away, I'm sure. But I, I really hope and, uh, and trust that they are beginning to find peace and that uh, they have confidence they'll see their loved ones again on the other side. Thank you for listening. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is our 50th episode. It is my hope that the next 50 are even better than the first 50. Tune in next week when I will discuss the grisly murders committed by a Tampa area man who was dubbed the Granny Killer. Micah Pratt raped, killed, and set fire to four elderly women 25 years ago in Hernando County. Among my special guests will be the investigators who worked the case and one of the prosecutors who convicted him, as well as one of the journalists who covered the case from start to finish. Please join us for that story. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.